Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode from my interview with Mitch Moxley, a magazine editor and freelance writer based in New York City. This episode picks up in the middle of our conversation with Mitch, explaining what happened after his piece in The Atlantic about being a foreign business student in China was published and went viral. He'll explain how he got a book deal and how the book went sideways in the editing process and ultimately received mixed reviews. He'll also talk about his recent piece, Knives Outback, published by the website Truly Adventurous, about a murder in an Australian town with a population of only 12 people. He'll also talk about how that piece is archetypal of a trend in magazine writing toward what we'll refer to as three-act stories, stories that have a beginning, a middle, and an end, like a fictional book or movie would have. That is exactly because freelance magazine writers are increasingly trying to get their stories optioned as a way to get by financially. Mitch really gives us a fascinating look behind the curtain of how film options are reshaping long-form journalism. I hope you enjoy this episode, as it will be my last until late November, when I'll be back from a couple of weeks of hiatus as I go on vacation and report on a climate conference in Glasgow. In the meantime, I highly recommend you go look through the back catalog. If you started listening more recently, there's a lot of good stuff in the first couple of dozen episodes. Check it out. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Mitch Moxley on the business of book writing and magazine journalism. And so then, so a couple things happened. One was that there was a ton of movie interest at the time. So I ended up, I didn't know what to do. I was getting like several emails a day from producers about rights and there was an agent at the time who had set up CAA's office in Beijing and a friend of a friend introduced me to him and then he contacted an an agent in Hollywood who then decided to represent the article and so for a while it was like incredibly exciting like I was having calls like every day with these producers where they were pitching like this actor and this director and stuff like that and the agent that I had was like a pretty big deal in the Hollywood comedy world. Like he had packaged and sold a lot of big Hollywood comedies. And so for a while, it really looked like this was going to be like a big option. Like, I, you know, I, some of the numbers floating around for what I would get just for the rights were like well into the six figures for this one ridiculous article. <laughs> and in the end, that never happened, unfortunately, although it, apparently it got very close. I don't know what the hesitation was. Like, my guess was that they got worried that doing a movie that might portray China negatively would be bad news for any studio that did it because China was super punitive at the time about any, like, portrayal of Hollywood negatively. They would, right. you know, like, block movies from being released, and it was such a huge market. That did eventually get optioned, but for a lot less money, and so, uh, they wrote a script that never went anywhere. So that, that happened. The other thing that happened was a literary agent contacted me and asked if I had any books that I ever wanted to do. I didn't know whether I could write a book or not. Like, it was kind of like in the back of my mind, it'd be great. I had taken like, a lot of notes at China Daily, but then there was already like, China Daily books, and you know, it wasn't that exceptional of an experience because a lot of people had worked at places like China Daily. But we did kind of come up with this idea to do a book about kind of lost in translation experiences that, you know, the Atlantic article would be part of and then my China Daily stuff and then, like, I pulled together some other experiences like that. And so I wrote a proposal and then she sold it for what seemed like good money at the time but was actually, in retrospect, like a a tiny amount of money. But for me, I didn't care. I just, like, wanted to write the book. 
And I guess I was just curious about the experience of writing a book, because I don't think I've actually talked to many people at all that have written books. I mean, I think it's something that's in the back of minds of a lot of journalists. But yeah, I, I guess just like, was it worth it? Because that's the question I, I always ask myself. Like, I'm like, I could try to write a book, but it seems agonizing. And like, is it really going to change my life? Maybe not. Um, and maybe it'll just make me miserable. <laughs> um, how, yeah. how did you find it now in retrospect? Well, it was a very, very mixed experience in my experience. So I had a couple things that happened. One is that the actual process of writing the book, I loved. And it was fun. I, I wrote it pretty quickly. Like I got the book deal, you know, because a lot of it went into the proposal. The proposal itself was probably 70 pages. So I already had it kind of like mapped out and a couple of the chapters already written when I started to like actually when I got the deal and mm -hmm. and started to write it I finished a draft in like 6 months but so a couple of things happened one is that the editor that acquired the book had spent some time in China was familiar with China was really excited about this particular book she was quite young and my agent was quite young and they were looking for something to do together and so my book never even really got shopped around it was basically like just for her and I liked her. Like she actually went to university with a friend of mine. We spoke on the phone. I just was like, she was the right person for it. But as I was in the middle of writing it, she went with her mentor to Amazon, who was starting their own publishing thing. And my book had been acquired by Harper Perennial, which is owned by Harper Collins, like much bigger, more established publisher. And so I had the option of staying with Harper Perennial with a new editor or going with the editor that bought the book to Amazon. It would be the same amount of money. But the downside for Amazon was that none of their books were in bookstores. And this was like a totally new thing. Nobody was sure how it was going to work. And my agent said that it would be best to stay with Harper Perennial. And I agreed. And so that's what we decided to do. So it got given to another editor who had not done nonfiction, the books that she had edited were very, very different from my book and the book that I was intending to do. And she had also never been to China. You know, it's, it's hard to say. Like, I basically what happened was I don't think we were right for each other as like writer and editor, you know, like I, mm -hmm. I think she was like a really good editor and she did some things that made the book a lot stronger. But ultimately, the book got taken in a different direction, which was one that was like much more personal. It was much more about me. It was like initially in my first draft, it was a lot more about the yarns. It was kind of like I was the kind of, you know, the straight guy in a crazy situation sort of thing. Right. So it was a lot less about like my internal experience or any growth that I had. It was more like the Atlantic story where it was just like, here's something crazy. And my editor and agent were like, this book needs to be more about you because like the reader needs to be able to follow along with your development. And so it did, it became like much more of a kind of like memoir and much more about like the ups and downs of living in China, about like kind of coming of age in China and things like that. So it, who, who the hell knows? Like, would it have been a different book under the other editor or I don't know, like, it, it, I don't know if it would have been more successful or what. But uh, after I did that first draft, I was like, oh, man, does she even like the book? Like, it really felt like 
she wanted to take you know like a pretty drastically different direction and so I was worried that I was like really worried that the book might be killed like not published at all because I couldn't seem to like get on the same page like we couldn't seem to get on the same page about what it should be but I did I, I went through the changes and by the time it was done I was pretty happy with it but I guess I didn't think about what it was going to be like to have something that personal be published. Uh. I remember I sent it to one friend of mine. She was an English teacher, I think. And she read it and she's like, you know, like, like, are you okay with having like this much kind of personal material in there? Like for people to read? I'm like, oh yeah, it's fine. Like, I don't care. Like I wanted this, you know, I wanted to be a, like a nonfiction writer anyway. This is par for the course. But anyway, so then the second major kind of bad thing happened, which is that as I was writing the book, I decided that this was a good way to wrap up my time in China. And I wanted to move to New York. And the one thing I felt like I hadn't been able to do in China, even though like, you know, I did a couple pieces for the Atlantic. I did about three pieces for them in the end. I did some stuff for the New York Times, like just a couple things. I did some pieces for the Wall Street Journal. So I was publishing in like well-known places, but I had never been able to sell like a real kick-ass magazine feature which is kind of what I always wanted to do in journalism. By that, I mean like a 5,000 word kind of back of the book thing. And I, I always loved GQ and GQ and Esquire were like the places I wanted to write for. And like, I just could not get anybody's attention there. Like I couldn't get replies to pitches. Like, I don't think I even knew like what really made a magazine feature at that time. Like I, I knew how to do these like short yarns and travel pieces and things like that. But I was like, okay, like I'm gonna use this book from an American publisher, it's coming out in the States, it's going to be in bookstores in the States. Like, I had a lot of friends that had moved to New York. I would come here once every year or two to try to meet editors and things, and I loved it. And I was like, this is the time. I'm going to use the book to move there. So I don't know the timeline exactly, but like, at some time before I moved, my editor was like, I'm really sorry, but I'm leaving this profession. I'm, I'm, she was going to go work in finance or something. She's like, I just, <laughs> she's like, I don't really like see a future for me in it. It's a very difficult thing. So I got handed off to her boss, who was uh, like, she was a pretty like big deal editor in New York, but does like literary fiction. She was great, but we were an imperfect match as well. So like right at the most crucial time where like they're deciding how much money they're going to put into promoting it, like all that stuff, how they're going to market it. I really had no advocates. Like I had an editor that didn't really like, I felt at least that she was like pretty half-hearted about the book altogether. And then I had lost my agent who had been like a great advocate for me and re replaced by somebody who I was just like tossed on her and wasn't even the type of book that she normally did. So... I moved to New York. I can, we can talk about this later if you want, but I took a cargo ship from China to, uh, or I left, I took from Korea to Seattle, like a 14 day trip on a freighter, which was a blast, but we can circle back to that if you want. Mm -hmm. I came to New York, I landed in New York and I moved here in about May and my book was going to be published in July. And I started to just get really alarmed. I'm like, they're not doing anything. Like there was no media set up. There was no book tour an internal publicist who like I couldn't even get a meeting with and I was like what is going on like and so I contacted the new agent and she's like oh let me look into it and she eventually convinced them to like print a few extra copies and like she got the publicist to like at least meet with me and talk about a media strategy but when the book came out like it was very underwhelming like 
you know, I had to do most of like the media stuff myself. Like I reached out to anybody I could think of where I might be able to get an interview. I did get like some pretty good interviews in Canada because I'm, you know, Canadian. And the initial reviews, like I got a good review in the Globe and Mail in Canada and like Publishers Weekly and Library Journal gave it positive reviews. But then there was a lot of like pretty negative reviews as well. And the negative reviews focused on the thing that I was most uncomfortable with, which is that the book was too much about me. And I, I don't think this is anybody's fault. Like maybe, maybe it had to be more about me. Maybe it was going to be worse if it, the reader couldn't follow along through my journey. But it did suck when like you write a book and like the main critique of it is that it's just too navel gazing and self indulgent. You know, like if you know, it feels very personal and it kind of you know it kind of hurts hurts the confidence a bit. And then it just didn't like you know it, like made a little trickle and there was you know it was in bookstores here. You could go to the Barnes and Noble and see it. That was pretty cool. And but it certainly didn't become a bestseller. Like it didn't sell amazingly well. I think maybe at that time it was just like who cared about another white guy in China story, which is fair. So, yeah, and then the other thing is that like it didn't really like help my career that much. Like maybe a little bit, like, you know, if I emailed an editor and the fact that I had written a book maybe added some weight, it was hard to tell. But I got here and then, you know, started to kind of like pick myself up piece by piece and like kind of like move beyond the book like I stopped even like mentioning the book after a while like I just because I just found it just didn't help so yeah like in retrospect about the book like I don't regret doing it like who who would say no to an offer to write a book I wish I could do it now like knowing what I know and I think it would just be a much different book if I did it now obviously I'm 10 years older it was a learning experience. I learned a lot about the publishing world and how it works. And I met a lot of other people who also had books like mine that didn't work out the way they wanted to. I think everybody thinks as soon as they publish a book, like your career is made. And that is just not the case. Like most books don't sell very well. Most books don't get a lot of attention. They publish a lot hoping that something's going to be a success. It often can be a lot of work with not much money. And less of a reward than you think it might be yeah um where to start i mean thanks for sharing all that nobody has uh, you know really talked in depth about uh, like i said i don't even think anybody has written a book that i can recall of my past guests but uh you know that inside baseball of how the sausage gets made is, is pretty interesting um even if it didn't yeah. work out you know great and yeah, about that. it's obviously tough whenever you put yourself out there so much. But uh, but I mean, things have all worked out in the end. I mean, I think even book aside, like everybody finds the transition back to the U.S. a little bit or or back to wherever a little bit difficult. But I mean, I feel like Definitely. everybody I know who came out of China, even if you go through a little rough patch at first, like they. They always end up, uh, you know, uh, sticking the landing. Um, yeah. So th that's good. So, so yeah, just to hit some of the other points I wanted to get to, I did just want to ask what your thoughts were on the state of just magazines in general. Uh, it's, I mean, you're not going to be surprised to hear this, but it's a, it's a really tough time for magazine journalism. And it's been a really rapid acceleration of a decline that's been happening for a while but in the last five years 
it's been really noticeable. Like you can just physically tell when you go to a newsstand and look at, well, what few newsstands still exist, but you go to a newsstand and like look at the thickness of a Vanity Fair or a GQ or something like that, and then look at one from 10 years ago. Like they're just completely different. And when you're losing that kind of advertising revenue, it's definitely going to have a negative impact on the product because, you know, that's where they got their money to produce these like fabulous magazines. Like you, you read stories about what some of these Condé Nast publications were like in the nineties or whatever. And they just had so much money. Like they could, you know, they could have somebody working on a story for a year. They could send a writer out on some speculative assignment and have him or her work on it for however long they wanted to. Like, when the North Korea Film Festival thing for GQ that I mentioned, that was like the last of these kind of magazine stories. Like I'd written a couple things for them before, but they were all pretty small. But they sent me to North Korea, paid for the whole trip, got this like incredible photographer, you know, paid me a pretty good magazine rate. And, you know, I don't know how much that trip cost them, but I would say, like, that story alone must have cost $40,000 to make. I don't know. And then when you, look at, when you look at that issue, like, that wasn't even, like, the main feature. There was several other, like, big, awesome features by really fucking amazing writers. And that was 2015. Now, 2021, I don't think any magazine would have signed that story. It costs way too much. They don't have the pages for it. You know, for all sorts of reasons, it just wouldn't happen. And so that's in, in six years. Like, it went from that to that. You know, six years ago, GQ was one of the last magazines that would be able to do something like that. So, yeah, so you, you have these mag- a lot of magazines have really suffered because of that. And then I also think, you know, I personally think that after Trump and Trump's election, like, I mean, Trump just sucked the oxygen out of everything. And magazines in general, I feel, became like very one note, like just obsessed with politics, obsessed with the culture wars, and just stopped more or less doing the kinds of like really awesome, international, colorful, crazy features that I grew up reading and wanting to do. Like you still do see them once in a while, but like I would say it's pretty few and far between. You know, it's it's uh, you know opinion journalism, like take journalism, uh, ideas pieces. They're so much cheaper. You don't have to send anybody anywhere. Right. Um, They drive viewers, but frankly, they they suck. I feel like I just uh, I get so exhausted with that type of journalism. I feel like it's all you read these days. You know, I guess on the bright side, like, there's still magazines that are doing great work. Like, if you go to longform.org, there's some pretty great feature that's going up every day. The New Yorker's still great. New York Magazine does good stuff. The Atlantic still does good stuff. You know, they do pretty good work when they can, but just they don't have the resources to kind of produce the kind of magazines that existed 10, 20 years ago. Right, right. And one thing, I don't know if you wanted to say more about it, but the whole, uh, you had mentioned when we were emailing before the podcast, you know, the fever for nonfiction IP rights in Hollywood. And I was just wondering, I mean, you talked a little bit about that with your book, but I mean, it does kind of seem like 
getting a career together as a freelancer, especially a freelancer living in New York, as many, many of them do, like the amount of overhead just to live in New York and the tenuous financials. We've we've talked about all that. But I mean, it seems like these intellectual property rights and selling them are almost like, I don't know, do people go in like thinking like maybe this could be a movie and this will be my lottery ticket type thing and that'll make the finances of my freelancing work out? Or how how has that impacted the work? Well, I mean, yeah, they definitely do because it is one of the few ways as a as a magazine writer to be able to make a good living. Like the math of freelancing is just crazy. Like if you're starting out, you're, you're going to be able to do like web pieces for like a hundred bucks a pop or something like that, two hundred maybe. Like think about how many pieces you would have to publish in a year to make even like forty thousand dollars. You know. It feels impossible. Like I, I could do it when I was in China because China was a lot cheaper. I did voice recording for extra money. I did all these other things for extra money. And I was lucky enough that I had family resources that if I needed to, I wasn't going to starve, you know. So then let's say you get to the point where you're writing proper magazine features. Like an average, for a good magazine, the pay is about $2 a word. Maybe if you're more famous, you get more. If you're on contract, you get more. But those contract jobs are pretty hard to find. So $2 a word, 5,000 word feature, you're making 10 grand. I mean, if you could do seven 5,000 word features in a year, that's pretty incredible. They take a ton of work. It's, you know, there's just not a lot of space. Like, you know, to be able to find seven good stories, to get them commissioned, to get that rate, you have to be a pretty like fucking good freelancer to write seven features in a year. And even then you'd only be making $70,000 a year and you don't have health care and all on and on. Right. So, you know, maybe some people have been, were able to do it in other ways. I don't know. Like that's just, I'm just throwing out those numbers as an example. You know, the bigger thing is that it's just incredibly hard to make a good living as a magazine writer in this current environment. And so the rights thing is a way to give the stories that you do, you know, a second life and sometimes get a pretty good paycheck. So I've optioned a couple things. The options that I've got have been pretty small. It wasn't a huge amount of money, like not a real difference maker. Nothing ever got picked up that was actually made into a show or anything like that. But uh, definitely in the last number of years, the number of things that gets options has increased. And I know a lot of journalists are having a lot, or, you know, like some journalists are having a lot of success doing that. But if you pay attention, you look through publications starting a few years ago, you'll notice that there's a lot more stories that are these kind of like classic three act stories, like tons of like heist stories and crazy crime stories and things like that. And that's because those get auctioned. That's what Hollywood's looking for. And another trend that you see now is whereas in the past, writers got to retain their rights to articles. Now, more often, you're having to split the rights with the publication because publications are realizing that this is a good way for them to make money, too. And so, like, Conde Nast has Conde Nast Studios now where they're, you know, working to try to get their content developed into film and TV. I think a lot of the other publications have their own kind of in-house kind of entertainment units that do this. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely become a thing where, like, 
I kind of stepped away from freelancing for a few years because, like I said, I was just really burnt out. There had been like too many bad experiences and too many frustrations, but I'm kind of slowly getting back into it now. And, you know, now, yeah, like every single story that I'm thinking about doing, I definitely think about whether there's an afterlife in the film and TV world for it because there's at least the opportunity of making some good money. But then also, to be fair, the vast majority never get made into anything, even if they're optioned. But if they do, you know, it would be a great opportunity to be able to participate in producing a documentary or being involved in a show or a movie or something like that. So it's kind of like the dream. Like, I think most people who do anything long form would be thinking along those lines at this point. Right, yeah. And uh, I mean, I remember journalism professors used to always say, like, think cinematically. And uh, this just takes it to the next level. For sure. Um, Okay. And then another story I wanted to talk about just because it was the reason why I remembered, oh, Mitch, I should have him on the show, is uh, this story that was just published last month, Knives Outback, about a kind of a true crime thing in Australia. And, I mean, it, it got some buzz. I remember I heard about it on another podcast, The Press Box, where they were talking about the the headline. Oh, really? And it's in a, a publication I hadn't heard of, Truly Adventurous, which kind of co-publishes on Medium, it looks like. And I don't know, just looking at it, I was just very curious about how it was done because it's written in the magazine style that I actually wasn't sure if you had gone to Australia or not Hmm. or, like, how you knew all this stuff, which, you know, for an average reader doesn't make a difference, but for a journalist, I always think, I always wonder how it was done. Yeah. And also about the publication because then I, you know, looked and read their mandate and they kind of want these three-act stories, they basically don't use those words, but they say that more or less in their description of what what they're looking for. And I was just like, huh, I wonder how they have the resources to pay for these kind of stories. And I I was, I guess I did honestly wonder if it was one of these things where they're they're doing it on a shoestring and it looks more glamorous than it is or, but take us behind the scenes. How, How did it all happen? Sure. Well, that story I read about in the New York Times in 2018, they had some like A6 one-pager on it. So just like the nuts and bolts of the story is there was this guy, a 70-year-old kind of like barfly, originally from Ireland, but spent his adult life in the Northern Territory, uh, lived in this small town called Larima, and went to the pub every day. And one day after leaving the pub, after having about 10 beers, he just vanishes his dog vanishes. There's no like trace of what happened to him. There doesn't look like there's foul play. They can't find his body anywhere. They do like this massive searches in the territory. And it's a, it's a town of, I don't know if I said this, but a town of 12 people. And around it is just like country, like quite treacherous. There's things that you can fall into. There's animals that can get you. There's myriad ways to get lost. And people kind of disappear in this area a lot. But he was a pretty experienced Bushman, and so it seemed unlikely that he would have just wandered off and disappeared and that they wouldn't find his body. So when the police come and investigate, they find out that there's all these like feuds in the town and all this, this bad blood everywhere. There's like people hate one another. There's kind of two rival factions. And in the middle, of a lot of these feuds is this one guy, Patty Moriarty, the guy who disappeared. 
So this was written about in the Times. They did an inquest in to try to find out what happened to him because everybody in the town was quite old and they were worried that people were going to start dying off without finding out what happened to him. And I was just like, what a crazy story. Like It felt like a, some kind of Coen Brothers movie. I was sure that somebody would do a magazine story on it, but I just started this new job. I didn't really have the resources to do it. And so it, it continued on in Australia as a pretty big thing. Like There was a big podcast about it. I think the ABC in Australia did a documentary. Lots have been written about it there. But nobody had done the kind of like great magazine piece on this. So I started pitching it around. But then right as I was kind of pitching it, the pandemic hit. And it was going to be you know, not possible to get to Australia. And the case had kind of hit a bit of a dead end. And so I just like, I didn't know what to do with it. I sat on it for a while and then like would eventually I contacted the main detective and I spoke with him and I found some other notable people in the story. And then around that time I was talking to these guys from Truly Adventurous who had started this publication, like you said, specializing in these kind of like, you know, cinematic stories. And they are definitely interested in creating content that can be translated into film and television. That's kind of their business model. So I basically, I needed to find a way to do it where, because I reached out to a couple of publications. I don't feel like I need to say who, but they were basically like, oh, well, we can't send you to Australia and on and on. So, But I, I, I thought I could do it without going to Australia. Like I think it would have been just personally a blast to go to this crazy town and try to solve a murder. Sure. But uh, I really, really wanted to do a story. Like it had been a couple of years since I'd written any long form thing. I'd been, you know, working my day job and working on this play and doing theater instead. And I was really kind of hungry to uh, do a story. And then I also was, ha some friends were having like some pretty good success writing these cinematic articles and optioning them. So I was like, well, maybe this is a way to get back into freelancing and actually make a bit of money doing it. And plus, I just like could not get the story out of my head. And so they were up for it. But like I said, I wasn't going to be able to go to Australia. So how do you do it? And it's a town of 11 people. A couple of the main characters had since died. Some of them had left town and were not going to be reachable. Like it's super remote. Like this town up until recently didn't even have cell phone coverage. And, you know, the, you know, the type of person that is attracted to that place like they're you know pretty kind of reclusive and can attract a kind of odd character so the, how i did it and uh I'm, i feel i take it as a huge compliment that you couldn't tell whether i went to australia or not for it <laughs> uh, because i didn't i reported it from my apartment in brooklyn but there's transcripts from the inquest and so for the inquest what they call a coroner and a, and a lawyer represents the coroner. The coroner's office is more like, I guess, maybe like a DA or something like that. Like they don't actually, it's not like a coroner here. But they ran this inquest. And over the course of two days, they interviewed everybody in the town who was still alive. So I, I managed to get the transcripts from the Northern Territory, whatever, like authority. And so I had about 150 pages of single space transcripts interviewing every single person, including the main suspects and friends and police and a, a search and rescue guy and stuff like that. So it was effectively as if I had gone and done interviews with everybody I possibly could. So I spoke with the main detective. I spoke with some other people who I can't say because it was they were off the record. And then I also managed to get in touch with one of the main suspects, basically, and have like a long phone conversation with her and a few others along the way as well. 
So I actually had a, even though I wasn't able to go there, I had a ton of material. I'm not sure like how much going there would have changed it because the town's a lot different now. Like a lot of people have left. Like I said, the main, the bar owner of the Pink Panther where he used to go, he's passed away. Two of the other main suspects are just gone. Like there was no way I could reach, at least I couldn't find a way to reach them. But I did have a ton of material based on these transcripts. So that's kind of how I did it, piecing together both the transcripts and interviews with these people I, was man I managed to get in touch with. And, you know, it is a crazy story. Like you couldn't make this stuff up. There's like alligator pits and dead kangaroos and the possibility that it was like cooked in a meat pie and wild pigs that eat bodies and stuff like that. Like it's just utterly bonkers. So it was really fun to work on that. Yeah, it's a great story. And I mean, it's at least in my small world, it seemed like it got very good play. Yeah, I think it I, I think it did. It got picked up on long form and long reads and places like that, which is always like a huge honor. And then, you know, like Truly Adventurous, they're doing really good work, but they're pretty small. Like a lot of people haven't heard of them. So it's cool that, that this story did get some attention. And for me personally, I, I'm really happy to have done it because like I said, I had been really kind of soured on magazine writing for the last few years, but found that I was really also missing it. Like I missed working on these pieces. So it was like a really fun reintroduction to writing nonfiction. I hope to do more of it. Yeah. And uh, just out of curiosity, I guess you had talked a bit about the selling IP rights, and I was just curious how, how it's worked for you in terms of does the publication get a cut of it? Do you get to to keep all the proceeds, or is it a case-by-case -case basis where it's in the contract going in? Yeah, it's case-by-case. So, like, you know, initially when I started to even think about rights, like with the Atlantic thing, years ago, it was basically the writer retained all the rights. And that up until recently was the standard. But then in recent years, it's definitely switched where publications started to think like, well, you know, we should be making money off of this too. And so like in more and more, you get basically an arrangement where you split. In some cases, you retain the rights, but they have an exclusive time period to try to sell them and any money made from it is split. In other cases, you hand the rights to the publication and they handle it all on their end. So they already have representation. They have uh, contacts in Hollywood that do it. So it just varies from publication to publication in terms of how the rights are split. But the trend is definitely away from the writer retaining all of the rights and more towards some kind of split between the writer and the publication. Uh, do you think that's good or bad? Well, so obviously it's better if the writer keeps all the rights. And the, one, of the reason, you know, one of the reasons is because like, the pay is so bad for most uh, publications. Like, even at the $2 word range, like I broke it down earlier, like it's, you know, it's hard to make a living. So on the other hand, there are some advantages to the publication being more involved in that, in that you know, if you're on your own, you have to, like, unless you already have an agent that's going to like, shop it around for you, then you know, you got to figure all that out, like how to get an agent, how to find an agent that you like, one who's going to represent you well. So when the publication already has like a built-in formula for that, it, it does offer the advantage of like, there are like a known quantity to studios and producers in LA. They already have the kind of like 
pipeline that goes directly there. So I guess it's a bit of a mix. Like, obviously, if you have an article that goes viral and you get to keep 100% of the option money, that's preferable. But, you know, my experience with that is like there's a lot of a lot of like flowery languages and promises about what's going to happen. And that often just like doesn't happen when you're dealing with the entertainment world. So there is an advantage to working with people who know what they're doing and can separate the serious from the unserious and things like that. Sure, sure. And uh, I guess just to finish, is uh, out of curiosity, do you have an agent right now who's looking to sell your rights to stories actively or, or no? No, I, well, I mean, I guess I technically do, but I haven't heard, I haven't spoken to them in years. But I did have, when the Random White Guy thing came out for The Atlantic, I had, I was represented uh, at that time. But they always do it, it's basically on this like non-contractual basis. So it's basically they represent the article in question and any other articles that they want to represent. And they claim it's for your best interest, but it's really so that they can just like move on when you don't have anything to sell. <laughs> but uh, no, because like in recent years, like I've still got a, a nonfiction agent, but uh, I don't have anybody that I'm dealing with in Hollywood. Right now is a bit of a different time because there's just so much content being produced by the streaming services. So if you write an article that has some kind of cinematic value, there are really good chances that it'll get optioned now. Like four or five years ago, that wasn't the case. I wrote this thing for The Atavist about this Chinese billionaire who wrote the kind of avatar of China. And that's definitely had the kind of cinematic three-act sort of thing. And that was in 2016, and it, it got optioned there, but it was more of like a shopping agreement, so there's no money involved. But then five years later, it did get optioned. Like somebody just came up and said, like, I'd like to option this article. Like I said, there's like a, this kind of a fever for IP right now. But I, what I was going to say is just that like over the years, like there were so many times where I would publish something, and then people would reach out and want to talk, and they'd have all these plans about this or that, and then nothing would happen. And so I just got like... I started to think that it was kind of like bullshit, but turns out, you know, now like there's people that are making, you know, really good money from optioning things. So I think it just depends on the article. It depends who's representing you. It depends on uh, your name recognition. If you could write an article that creates a bidding war, then you can get a pretty good payday and you definitely would want to be represented in that case. Yeah. And I guess just to bring it back to Knives Outback, yeah, I mean, reading it, I definitely could see it becoming a Netflix show or something like that, um, for sure. That would be awesome. Yeah. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Mitch Moxley, a magazine editor and freelance writer based in New York City. I'll post links to some of the things Mitch talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. Definitely go read his true crime piece, Knives Outback. You won't regret it. If you like the podcast, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me, 
Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and in our show page. Please look for the podcast to return with another episode in late November. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.